0: When I lived in London in my mid-twenties, I tried my best to avoid just hanging around with Australians. We've all heard the stories of Australians going over and just being with Australians. I had a job, a new life, and I was trying new things. I was probably needlessly judgy of people I knew who just went to London and hung out with Australians. I wouldn't fall into that trap, I promised myself. I soon learned why that happens. The British friends I made were great, but they lived a different life. They had high school friends who had birthdays or they had family gatherings to go to. They had, you know, an existing life in the city they grew up in. Us working visa types, we had no roots. I was passing through with every night and every weekend to fill. So I found myself hanging out with Aussies. And New Zealanders and South Africans and the Welsh. Basically, the London orphans who had nothing but time to hang out. Every weekend, every night. We had no existing life. And of course, everywhere you go, there's bloody Australians. So I fell back in with Australians. Some of them are my best friends. I know how it looks, and I understand if you're needlessly judgy about it. Australian orphans in London had a notorious home ground. At least it did in the time when I lived there. I heard about them before I ever went to one. It wasn't a place I hung out at, But I did go a couple of times. They were called walkabouts and there were these Australian themed backpacker pubs. The walkabouts were these places where Aussies would get, as the Australian vernacular would call it, completely munted and then throw up on sawdust on the ground and then snog some other backpacker. Usually in that order. They've since been sold and turned into a generic sports bar chain which is probably for the best. There were times when these walkabouts would have special events for Australians. And I'm afraid to say I went along a few times. They would be open all night for the Rugby League Grand Final and the AFL Grand Final. They would take place at like 1am and you would turn up at the walkabout and they would have some sort of offer of a beer and a meat pie and the smell of vomit. You would down a beer and a three hour old meat pie at 1am. Look, I'm not proud of it. There was one other time that these Australian pubs would go all night, one other event on the calendar as big as the Rugby League Grand Final and the AFL Grand Final, that no matter how far or how wide they roamed, there was one other day that Australians anywhere would get together and enjoy an Australian tradition. And that was a Triple J Hottest 100. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the Triple J Hottest 100, apparently the biggest music democracy in the world. Triple J was going through a huge change in the early 90s. It was the subject of episode one of this podcast. There were new voices on air, a new national audience, and a lot of time to fill. The station was looking for new ideas and reinvention. And a young man had an idea lori zion had studied music history but got sick of academia and had started working at triple j as an intern other people at the abc would tell him how there was this academic with papers who shared his name not knowing it was the same guy zion is credited for coming up with the idea of the countdown that would be called the hottest 100 although he said he just worked on the rough idea of a countdown maybe because the countdown has changed a lot from his original idea and he doesn't take credit for what the Hottest 100 would one day become. But the idea wasn't to be just another countdown. Zion's idea came from wanting to provide an alternative. He had grown sick of existing greatest album lists, especially those in magazines like Rolling Stone, which started in the 60s and were still beholden to that era in their lists. Because their audiences was also boomers. Surely Triple J's audience would be different. Surely if they asked Triple J's audience for their favourites, they wouldn't be the same tired 60s Beatles albums, especially if the focus was on songs, not albums, which worked better for radio and for young people. Zion's idea does sound like one that comes from an academic. It was about taking a whole lot of data, collating it and studying it and seeing what you get. Zion pitched the idea and management liked it. Now, it's unclear if and unlikely that Zion would have been allowed to name this countdown, but the name given to the list was the Hot 100. Not the hottest 100, as it would ultimately be known. Thing is, there was already another Hot 100. The Hot 100 was an annual countdown held by Brisbane community radio station, Triple Z. When Zion pitched his idea, he pitched it to Triple J station manager, Andy Neal. Neil was well aware of the Triple Z countdown having spent time in Brisbane. He actually worked at Triple Z and the original Hot 100. In 1980, over a decade earlier, Neil had revived a 70s countdown called the Hot 100 for Triple Z. The rules around the 1980 Triple Z Hot 100 were kind of mad and it took a lot of work. Triple Z listeners had to write in and vote for 100 songs. Looking back from this digital era, the idea of writing out 100 songs by hand sounds like torture. It was songs from any era and compiling the song lists was a labour intensive task. The 1980 Triple Z Hot 100 was topped by Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. The highest Australian song on the list was I'm Stranded by the Saints at number 10. It was a Brisbane list after all. But overall it's a damn cool list. It's worth noting that during the 70s and 80s, Triple Z was a brilliant island of counterculture in Queensland, a state run by state premier Joe Biocchi-Peterson. Biocchi-Peterson was a notorious tyrant, nicknamed the Hillbilly Dictator, who used state resources to crack down on people and was ultimately exposed as utterly corrupt. Triple Z, this alternative progressive community radio station, was an enemy of the state whose young journalists often investigated and highlighted the corruption in Queensland. The Peterson had also played his part in Gough Whitlam's downfall seven years earlier. Queensland and Brisbane in the 80s sounded like the scariest place in Australian history. Neil moved out of Brisbane to Sydney in 1982 and found work at Triple J. According to Neil, moving to the Sydney-only Triple J was a sidestep from Triple Z, It was just another big city alternative radio station. But without that triple Z cool of fighting against the man. Still, he would rise through the ranks of Triple J to be station manager. So when Zion came up with his idea, Neil knew the potential. He had seen the Hot 100 work before. And in Sydney, it would work again. The first Triple J Hot 100 was held on the 5th of March 1989. It was a vote for the best songs of all time and to vote, you had to write in on a piece of paper. As a snapshot of what Triple J audiences were listening to and loving at the time, it's fascinating. If Triple J were hoping to be an alternative to Rolling Stone magazine, well, there were places where that failed because the Rolling Stones themselves made the list, as did Hendrix and The Beatles. But the list was modern. 61 tracks on the list were released in the 80s, including the entire top 11. 26 of the tracks were Australian. Topping the list was Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division. An Australian song was at number 2, Hunters and Collectors' Throw Your Arms Around Me. That song would go on to be an anthem and covered by buskers at your local train station right now. But in 1989, the Hunters and Collectors album that the track was from was only 3 years old and it hadn't yet been covered by Crowded House, Pearl Jam or the 10 Tenors. Those buskers were still working out that funny B suspended chord. In terms of having a modern list, it was pretty good. In terms of Australian, it was also pretty good. In terms of being an alternative to the mainstream, I would also say pretty good. There are some big hitters, sure. Often they were more obscure works by bands that people know, like A Forest by The Cure or Rock Lobster by the B-52s. Still not songs you hear on commercial radio. And then there are brilliant moments the masterpieces of underground music. There's Another Girl, Another Planet by The Only Ones, which had the brilliant idea of putting the guitar solo at the start of the song. Dead Kennedy's abrasive holidays in Cambodia. Pioneering hip-hop track The Message by Grandmaster Flash. Yeah, look, the Rolling Stones are there, but on the whole, a very interesting list full of very good stuff. Of the Australians on the list, apart from hunters and collectors, you had early Nick Cave band The Boys Next Door with their wonderful Shiver the song that created the goth movement in Australia. There were soon to be legends like the go-betweens, the Triffids, Radio Birdman, the Saints, the Saints and the Saints. Triple J ran the poll again on the 20th of May 1990 and the tracks were extremely similar. The same number one, the same number two. The entire 1989 top 10 is featured again in the 1990 top 32 in a different order. Triple J at this point had launched in Melbourne and the second Hot 100 was less than two weeks after the infamous Triple J town hall protests from episode 1. Through all that controversy, someone was probably compiling Hot 100 entries that were written by hand. But in 1991, things changed. In 1991, Nirvana happened. 1991's list, the third Hot 100, looks very different to the 1989 and 1990 lists. It was still an all-time list, The number one was Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. The poll took place on the 9th of February 1992. That song was released on the 10th of September 1991. It was less than five months old and it was already the most hot song of all time for Australian alternative kids. Nirvana had actually just wrapped up their one and only Australian tour when the countdown happened. Peter Hook of Joy Division and New Order recorded a gag for Triple J, announcing that this year they had only come in at number two and that they would have to try again the next year. Nirvana's Chris Novoselic then announced the winner as Michael Jackson's Black or White, before, JK, he accepted the no prize of coming first. Nirvana were not alone. Nineteen songs from the 100 on the list were from 1991, and another nine from 1990. That's over a quarter of the songs were from the last two years. It was a sign of many things. It was the new National Triple J pushing new music and finding a new young audience. It was this alternative explosion and how the appetite for people was in new voices and not in what was already around. And if this was going to be a new music countdown anyway, why not embrace it? Why not make the list just about one year? But before they could, Triple J had to work out the problem with the name. If the change from the 80s and the 90s for Triple J were painful, like I discussed in episode 1, well, at least it was growth. In Brisbane, Triple Z was fighting for its life. Triple Z was based at the University of Queensland. And in 1988, that university established a right-wing student council. It was a backlash following Joe Biocchi-Peterson's downfall a year earlier allegations of corruption finally caught up with bielke peterson his lieutenants all went to prison the hillbilly dictator escaped that fate because one jury member in his case was a member of the young nationals there's a whole movie about it called joe's jury and that jury member whose name is luke shaw would end up being the campaign director for bob katter i guess that's the level of corruption we are dealing with that guy still currently works in australian politics and is not in prison. Similar young Conservatives made up Bjelke Peterson's unhappy followers at the University of Queensland's Student Council. At 4.17am in the morning of December 14, 1988, the executive of the UQ Student Council, headed by Victoria, Brazil, and some security guards, handed an eviction notice to Darren, an unpaid volunteer covering the night shift. They kicked poor Darren out and took the station off air. The Student Council were hoping that that would be that. But the Triple Z team weren't going to go down without a fight. Ingenious Triple Zers set up a van, plugged a cassette player and a microphone straight into the tower and kept broadcasting. The station was technically off air for less than 12 hours. Back at the university, hundreds of people occupied the former Triple Z building. They cut the power, but still the people stayed. The university called the police, but it was a civil matter and they couldn't get involved. Plus the idea of using police brutality to get them out was suddenly uncool in that state. In the intervening months, students and Triple Z supporters continued to occupy union buildings. This included writer John Birmingham, who would write about these times and future Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. The Student Council were forced to negotiate, but Triple Z saw the writing on the wall. The occupations and demonstrations on campus bought the station enough time to find a new temporary home in July of 1989. 7 months after they were supposedly taken off air. Also by July, Victoria Brazil and her student council were forced to resign. They had become so unpopular due to the triple Z issue and other cuts. A new student council that supported triple Z was elected but by then triple Z were on a path away from their student roots. So in amongst all this, a Sydney station was taking the name of one of their biggest events, the Hot 100. The second Triple J Hot 100 took place three months into that seven month drama. It's important to note that for the first two Triple J Hot 100s, Triple J were not in Brisbane. Their national expansion was still a dream. But by the end of 1990, they were in Brisbane and now there was a clash. Triple Z asked for a meeting and told Triple J that they would take legal action. But Triple Z at this point was without a permanent home, whereas Triple J was funded by the ABC, housed in one of the biggest media studios in Australia, and had a national license. Triple Z didn't really have the resources to fight it, or they didn't even know if they would survive the rest of the year. The ABC made the smallest change as a concession, from hot to hottest, and they never acknowledged Triple Z on a corporate level, and they even revised their history so that those first few lists were retroactively called the hottest 100 in their history, not hot 100s. Andy Neal, for his part, acknowledges that Triple Z was where the Hot 100 started. Also, arguably the most famous and important music list on the planet, the US Singles Chart, is called the Billboard Hot 100. So what is a Hot 100 anyway? At least for Triple Z, they could continue with their Hot 100, which still runs to this day. But what the hottest 100 would become was probably bigger than anyone could imagine. The 1993 Triple J Hottest 100 was the first to allow only songs from a single calendar year. It matched with Triple J's new youth music playlists which focused on new music. And whatever the origins, the Hottest 100 became something unique in the market and a huge instrument to help new Australian music. Each year from then on is a snapshot of time. They are the baby photos of a generation's music tastes. I'm fascinated by so many things in these baby photos. Of course, what came first in these lists are fascinating and important. But also, what silly trends marked the year? What songs did well but didn't stand the test of time? What songs I totally don't recognise or remember at all? 1993's list was topped by comedian Dennis Leary's "Asshole." It's a joke song, and Triple J, or Triple J's audience, loves joke songs. Because they were rude and funny and you didn't hear them anywhere else. And because their core audience were young people and young people like funny. The Hottest 100 is littered with these comedy songs in 1993 and beyond. But sometimes that just ain't enough to keep a man like me interested. Oh no. No way. Uh-uh. uh-uh. No, I've got to go out and have fun at someone else's expense. Oh yeah. What is interesting is how few Australians are on the list in 1993, and there's only one in the top 10, The Honeymoon is Over by The Cruel Sea, and then only 24 overall. I like those early Ace of Bass singles, but what is all that she wants doing on there? Remember the song Jessie by Paul? No? Well, it came in at number 32. It did 7 spots better than Friday I'm In Love by The Cure. There's an Australian band called Barefoot who had a song called Baby You Got In The Way who only released one album and don't even have a Wikipedia entry. It's amazing that Triple J used to play Salt and Pepper or East 17 or the highly offensive Inner Circle song, Sweat, open brackets, a la 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 long, close brackets. This is the truth about all these lists. If you were to actually listen to all 100 songs, it would probably be awful. But the bigger stuff, the stuff that changed the course of music was here and often well represented. Who can argue with Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name Of or The Cranberry's Gorgeous Linger? There's heaps of big important songs by R.E.M. or Violent Femmes or the Pet Shop Boys. Bubbling under are bands like Dinosaur Jr., Ween, Screaming Trees and For Tomorrow, the first great single by Blur. There's so much great music on this list. The number 100 song of 1993 was, incredibly, Van Morrison and John Lee Hooker with a new cover of the Van Morrison song, Gloria. Triple J were not quite the alternative hub it would become. Let's talk about the wonderful band, Ween. The American duo of Dean and Gene Ween were one of the oddest bands to sign to a major label in the early 90s. They were a lo-fi cassette band that for some reason ended up on Elektra Records. Elektra in the early 90s was a very strange label and a story too big to tell here. But somehow Ween was on a major label. Their first album on Elektra was 1992's Pure Guava, a mad collection of nonsense. Someone thought that there should be a single and a video and chose Push the Little Daisies as the song. In the US, it was something for American college radio to play, especially as the band toured, there'd be something for local DJs to talk about. It did okay in the US, in the Billboard chart of modern tracks, making it to number 21. In Australia, it was picked up by Triple J. It wasn't flogged or anything, but by 1993, Triple J was in all the capital cities and growing. And yes, the song was memorable and catchy, but it wasn't played on commercial stations. The video was on Rage, though. But it was really Triple J driving it. And Triple J driving it meant it made the hottest 100 of 1993 at number 40. And it also made the mainstream normal ARIA charts at number 18. Look, if Triple J could give Ween a top 20 Australian single, then a top 20 Australian single was up for grabs for anyone who got Triple J support. I'm not going to go through year in year by detail, and we will get to talking about 1994 and the years beyond in later episodes. But as the Triple J Hottest 100 carried on, it continued its baby photography work. And over the years, we can see how the Australian music landscape changed. The top song of 1994 was Zombie by the Cranberries. The Cranberries are a great band with a rich history and a wonderful story, and I love them. Zombie is interesting. They were a folky band who kind of went grunge for one song. It's a powerful song, and it's amazing that Australian teenagers connected to a song about the Northern Ireland Troubles. More likely, the guitar crunch was right for the time. The highest Australian song in 1994 was Tomorrow by Silverchair at number 5. And we will definitely get to that story. It was one of three Australian songs in the top 10. Wonderfully, none of the three were remotely like each other. One of the others was by songwriter Max Sharam, and the other by dance act Severed Heads. 26 tracks on the list are Australian. The list is full of grunge and it's kids. Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins. There are less oldies, but Neil Young is there with the novelty-ish song, Piece of Crap. 1994's 100th song was Lisa Loeb's Stay, open brackets, I'd missed you, close brackets. It's a great song tied to the alternative scene through its use in the film Reality Bites. It crossed over and wasn't really a rock song, but definitely the kind of stuff that was Triple J in 1994. 1995 was topped by Oasis with Wonderwall. This was when Britpop started to crack Australia, and the list is a mix of British brilliance like Pulp, Blur and Porter's Head, second generation American grunge like Everclear, Presidents of the United States of America, and then some great Australian stuff. The highest Australian song is Apartment by Custard at number 7. Four Australian songs this time are in the top 10, including two by Tism. UMI, Regurgitator, Pollyanna, Grinspoon and many names that would make it bigger as the decade wore on are on this list. 30 Australian tracks make up the list. 1995's 100 song was the curious talking Seattle grunge rock blues by the American indie folker Todd Snyder. It's a talking blues in the vein of Bob Dylan, making fun of the grunge scenes, the sudden feign and the gimmicks. It ends with a line about going back to Athens, Georgia, A very astute line because that's where the cool U.S. alternative rock city was before Seattle. In 1995, a reflective song dissecting the scene with bitterness was already a minor hit. The creeping growth of Australian music was important. You can see the trend as the years go on. But also, in the world of music and rock and roll, there are lots of lists. The 100 greatest albums of all time here, the 200 greatest songs over there, the 101 choruses you must memorize before your next visit to the doctor, all that stuff. Australia, an English speaking country, is flooded by these lists. But often, they don't contain anything Australian. They are written by Americans or Brits and Australian music is left out. The Hottest 100 is probably the most important music list because it not only includes Australians, it puts them in context. It's not just that Custard's apartment exists, it's that it was huge and bigger and hotter, I guess, than Jeff Buckley's last goodbye. I know for me as a teenager, it was a source of pride. There was one place that Australian music, this music that was around me and that I love so much, was finding it out with the artists I saw on the cover of Q magazine. That rise and pride in Australian music culminated in 1996. That year Spiderbait became the first Australian band to top the hottest 100 with Buy Me A Pony. I liked the song a lot, but I was surprised to see it at number 1. I remember being in my bedroom listening along when it came up. I wasn't a close Triple J listener at that point. There wasn't an obvious song for me that they hadn't yet included in the countdown. So when Spiderbait came on, it was a genuine surprise. And as a self-identified Australian music fan, I felt proud. The 1996 list seems extremely diverse. In the top 10, there's the sophisticated indie piano pop of Ben Fold's Five, the progressive hard rock of Tool, and whatever the hell Ballad of the Skeletons by beat poet Allen Ginsberg was. 1996's 100th song was Ben Harper's Gold to me. It's another sign of alternative opening up to beyond white dudes in three-piece bands, and Triple J supporting an artist regardless of whether they were big in the US. Ben Harper charted in Australia before the US because of Triple J. He did well here despite no support from any other radio. It was kind of like another ween. The Whitlams repeated the Australian number one trick in 1997, topping the list with No Aphrodisiac. But this time, I loved the song in advance and I knew it was a big hit. On the day of the big countdown, as the show went on, it was conspicuously missing, which just built the excitement for me. I remember feeling very happy when it made it to number one. 34 Australians made the list that year, including bands like Jebediah and The Living End. 1997's 100th song was an Australian band, Effigy, with the song I Give In. They were signed to the new Australian arm of US rock label Roadrunner. Australian, independent and rock. They were from Perth and this was the first track from their debut album and their biggest hit. 1998's top song was the fascinatingly awful Pretty Fly for a White Guy by The Offspring. The main thing to say is that unlike the Whitlams and Spiderbait, this song was also a huge hit on commercial radio. Ween showed that Triple J was big enough to affect the charts, but in 1998 commercial radio was coming back in a big way and was big enough to affect the Hottest 100. That song beat out an amazing seven Australian songs in the top ten, The highest being Ben Lee's Cigarettes Will Kill You at number two, and Custard's Girls Like That at number three. With a massive 42 Australian entries, the trend this year in 1998 is just Australian music. 1998's 100th song is, not surprisingly, Australian. It was Sick Often by Not From There, a three piece led by Austrian born Heinz Reigler, who relocated to Brisbane in the 90s. The debut album was released on Infectious Records distributed by Mushroom. It was their biggest hit, an arresting piece of fuzz rock sung in Austrian-German. They got a lot of critical acclaim, including winning an Aria for Best Alternative Album in 1999, but they failed to follow it up. The decade ends with the list that had the most Australian songs so far. 1999 was topped by Powderfinger with These Days, and the 100th song was Passenger, also by Powderfinger. That might sound like an extremely unlikely coincidence to have the top and bottom song, But Ocean Alley also had the first and 100th song in 2018. It helps that the hottest 100 of 1999 featured 250 Powderfinger songs. 52. Over half of the tracks are Australian. The top 3 were all Australian. These Days was followed by Killing Heidi's Weir and The Tenant's You Shit Me To Tears. This is it. This is how big Australian music got in the 90s. This is where our story is heading. How we got from a couple of Australian tracks in the top 10 at the start of the 90s, with Australian music fighting on the beaches against the multiple invading forces of grunge and Britpop, to Australian music making up over half of the biggest songs on the biggest countdown on Australia's most popular radio station. But also how bands like Powderfinger, Killing Heidi and The Offspring fit in with being alternative, whatever the hell that means. That's all in the episodes and seasons to come. 52 Australian songs on the list would remain unbeaten until 2018 when 56 of the tracks were Australian, a story that will be covered in a podcast made by somebody else which I hope will be called Some podcast That I Used To Know. The Hottest 100 was a big deal. At least it was in my schoolyard. Even the kids who didn't know music was aware of the list by the end of the decade. For those of us who already made music our lives, it was the subject of endless fascination and over-analysis. Predicting the number one in the hottest 100 became a hot topic. Everyone was an armchair expert. Even at a young age, I knew that being number one was no sign of quality. People who thought that their favourite bands had a song that deserved to be number one was nonsense. It was all maths and strategy. Like how recent tracks did better than a big hit in February because that hit would be forgotten. Or how having multiple tracks of a hit album split your vote. Of course, like all armchair analysis, sometimes it works. Most of the time, it's just bullshit. But sometimes it's fun to talk bullshit about music. By the end of the decade, Triple J would start saying that the Hottest 100 was the biggest music poll of its kind. By then you didn't have to vote on paper having switched to a phone number, SMS and even voting on the new Triple J website. People would throw parties and Triple J would call up some of these parties and put the listeners to air. The rise of the Hottest 100 coincided with the rise of Triple J as a whole. At the time, they were newly national and reached an amazing 1.8 million Australians. At the end of 1994, they did their biggest push since going national. They created a network of 22 regional hubs around Australia that now got Triple J. Previously, Triple J going national was just Triple J going to a lot of big cities. The Prime Minister at the time, Paul Keating, announced the extension with guests like Dave Graney. It was an easy political win. In 1998, they moved a the countdown to the Australian Day weekend to match with the Sydney Big Day Out. Triple J would broadcast live from the festival and the bands that were on the bill that featured on the list would visit their makeshift Sydney Big Day Out studio. It wasn't always on Australia Day, but it was usually that weekend. It meant that if you went to the Sydney Big Day Out, you couldn't actually listen to the countdown. Of course, the British Walkabout pubs were drawing in Australians to celebrate Australia Day around the same time as the Hottest 100. And I understand that for many people who grew up in the years when the Hottest 100 soundtracked Australia Day, it was something that they cared about. It's great that Australians have a day that they cherish listening to new music. But the conversations about what Australia Day stands for has changed, and rightly so. But I never grew up with the Hottest 100 on Australia Day, and there's also no more Sydney Big Day out either. Things change. But the way I spent the most time with the Hottest 100 was the CDs. Triple J had always been good at releasing compilations, even in the early Double J days. There were compilations for the Live at the Wireless series since the 80s, so they made a compilation for the very first Hottest 100 in 1993. It was two CDs, only 32 of the 100 tracks. Still, it was an immediate success and the highest-selling Australian alternative album of 1994. That model of a two-CD release would follow for the rest of the 90s and beyond, and all of them would be amongst the highest selling albums every year. My brother bought volumes 2 and 3 of the compilation, covering 1994 and 1995. I played the hell out of those two compilations, and the many compilations in the years that followed. I was so excited when the 1996 compilation came out, about as excited as any album coming out that I ever would be. For me, the hottest 100 lists weren't about the 100 songs. It was more about the 30-odd songs on those yearly compilations. They were eclectic too, everything from Nine Inch Nails to Pet Shop Boys to Rebecca's Empire. And owning them and being able to re-listen allowed me to learn about music that wasn't designed to be immediate radio hits. Those CDs might not be the first place I ever heard UMI, Pulp, Custard or Dinosaur Jr, but it's where I fell in love with them. More than a compilation of the Hottest 100, they were kind of a compilation of the best of Triple J. And look, of course, I don't listen to the Hottest 100 anymore. It's not for me. And if I did and people my age did and we cared enough to vote, it would ruin the list. These lists are for new artists and for new fans to put in the work of putting Australian bands into an important context. That's how it's supposed to work. And it's for the next generation of music fans to feel proud when they hear their favorite bands at the top. From here on in, I'll be mentioning the Hottest 100 a lot. Being voted in the Hottest 100 became a big deal. It's a line you would put in your press release. When I worked for record labels in London, I saw a lot of press releases for international bands, and even those international bands would mention the Hottest 100 in there. For the 90s Australian music scene, there was no better barometer of popularity. They were our baby photos. You might not like looking at them, but they're too important to throw away. To end, we're going to look at one very different list. In 2011, Triple J broke with the formula for some reason, doing a poll for the hottest Australian albums of all time. All three of those elements break from the previous hottest formula. All time, Australian only and albums. It was weird. But as I said for the juice list, there aren't many of these lists done by proper publications or media outlets. You can find the links in the show notes, but we're going to do some quick highlights. The number one hottest Australian album of all time in 2011 was an album that might as well have been from the 90s. It was 2000's Odyssey No. 5 by Powderfinger. We will get to Powderfinger in a later episode. ACDC's Immortal Back in Black is at number three. 21 albums were from the 90s. But here are the top five on the list that are actually from the 90s. Coming in at number 12 and the fifth highest Australian 90s album is Guide to Better Living by Grinspoon. The 4th highest Australian 90s album and at number 10 is UNIT by Regurgitator. 3rd highest and at number 6 is Internationalist by Powderfinger. 2nd highest and at number 4 is The Living End with their self-titled debut album. And the number 1 hottest Australian album of all time according to Triple J listeners in 2011 is Frogstomp by Silverchair which came in at number 2. That means for a generation Frogstomp by Silverchair is better than Back in Black. And the rest of those albums, released later into the 90s, don't worry, we will get to all of them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Just Ace, and welcome to The End Bit, the bit where I talk about support and what all those links in the description do. Look, each week I highlight a different way to support the show. Last week I talked about leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts to help me get cracking on internet algorithms. It all helps me spread the word, but this week it's something very similar but also different, and it's literally spreading the word. There's no link for this one. Look, I guess you could share the website on social media or something, but really, just tell a mate or two about the podcast. In every single study of how people listen to podcasts, the number one way to discover a new podcast is through a friend's recommendation. So it really, really means a lot. So yeah, add to the noise. Every time someone recommends you to watch The Bear, harry with i got a podcast you would like assuming they might like it you know but in all honesty it's the best way to spread the word i don't do ads i'm not part of some mega podcast network and and mia do not return my phone calls so word of mouth is super important to indie podcasts like me for ways to support that actually have links hey check out the links in the description like there's a patreon a tipping service called buy me a coffee and stuff that you can buy on redbubble follow along on all social media I'm at Just Ace 90s which is Just Ace 90s just about everywhere and there's a mailing list now too and don't forget the website where you can find show notes and more information from every episode including videos photos and all sorts of stuff that's also at justace90s.com okay next week we look at the wild and unconventional career of Mr Tex Perkins